Welcome everyone, I am Andrew Duckworth and I'd like to thank you for joining us for one of our special edition podcasts for the month of November. We hope that you've enjoyed our podcast uh, so far this year and that you're enjoying all the content from our knowledge translation team here at the BJJ and that we are achieving our aim to improve the accessibility and visibility of the, the research and studies we publish here at the journal. As part of this, as many of you know, we're producing special edition podcasts. One of these is the Insights from the US series with our amazing guest so far, Professor Heather Vare, chatting about trauma. Professor Matt Abdul's joined us to discuss about adult hip and knee recon uh, literature. And coming up soon is a great chat with Professor David Ring covering upper limb uh, and the importance of the psychosocial factors in our practice. So I do, do encourage you to look out for those that uh, coming up soon. The second of our special edition series this year has been with our specialty editors here at the Journal. And the aim of these is to sort of give our listeners an insight into the vital work they do here at the Journal and what they feel the current research trends are in their area, as well as maybe highlighting some papers from the past year that we have published. So today I have the absolute pleasure to welcome for the first time, not only one of our special editors for General Orthopedics, but also our editor emeritus here at the Journal, Mr. James Scott. A huge welcome, James, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Not at all, Andy. Very nice. Thank you for asking me. Pleasure, pleasure. So, James, I've I've asked all our special editors. So, I know obviously you're you're retired now, but over the past eighteen months or so, you know it's been a strange, difficult time for all of us. But what, can you sort of give us your your own brief overview, I suppose, your own insights of the pandemic, and and I suppose predominantly in your role as a special editor for General Orthopedics here at the BAJ and your involvement, and how you feel that's impacted things over the past year or so? Well, there were initially more papers because people were doing less work in the hospital, so they were sending more stuff. Mm. And there were more papers that had taken longer time to prepare, Mm. and they took more time to rewrite. My main role in life these days is to rewrite for you, and it's a very great privilege to do it, and I'm I'm very happy to do it. But I noticed during the pandemic, certainly at the beginning, that there were more papers and they were in more depth. Mm. And more, and they were very interesting. And they sort of dried up towards the end as people got um, got got back to work. Yeah. But the essence, why we rewrite, became highlighted again for us. What is the purpose of this? Are we actually helping? And, mm. and in what way are we doing it? And other than that, the great, really good work that keeps on being sent to the journal was was there for all to see, and that was very very exciting. That's that's really interesting. In terms of the rewriting has that has that changed over the past few years? Is is it become more difficult? Is it easier? How has anything changed about that at all? Well, there are many many things, Andy, which during the last you know, twenty five years more that I've been associated with the journal. There are very 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 many things that have changed substantially and wonderfully for the and maybe we'll we'll come to some of them. But one thing that very strangely has not changed. Well, there are two things in relation to this. One is that the that that underpins the work of the journal has not changed, if you like, what used to be called the mission statement. So mm. that although your reviewing database is absolutely essential, and you have to remember that the reviewers are the heroes of the whole business, ultimately, and of course, authors, you've got to be very nice to your authors uh, and encourage them. But the end product, what you get is is for the readership. And it's very important to remember in all our work, particularly when we're rewriting, that who are you doing this for? You're not doing it for the authors or for the reviewers. You're doing it for the people who are going to read it. Mm. And that has not changed. And and, and I'm rather surprised it hasn't changed because I used to tell Emma that, uh, that, you know, we're going to stop all this nonsense. It takes up much too much time and you will very wisely cut me off one of these days 
And I was absolutely wrong. Yeah. And she was quite right. It goes on and on and on. And furthermore, and what is very interesting about the way in which things have changed in the journal is that the way in which this material is set out has not changed. Yes. And you would expect, because of all the phenomenal changes that have happened in methodology yeah. uh, and statistics and all of that, uh, that maybe we'll talk mm. a little bit about, yeah. that, 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 that the, the basic thing that you are reading doesn't change. And yes. that, that, that is a surprise. So, I mean, do you, you, will you remember one thing, in, which is that each paper, every paper really only deals with one issue. Yes. Yes. And that issue will be in the last sentence of the introduction. The method that it is chosen, they've chosen to ask this question will be in the method. The results will be in the results and the discussion of it will be um, in the discussion. And that absolutely hasn't changed. It's a little mm. bit different, of course, yes. with open access material. But mm. basically, the readers of the BJJ get the material presented in the, exactly the same way as has happened through the years. And this, of course, began in 48 with, uh, with Watson Jones, mm. very, very, very beautiful, clear writing. And that was again and again by John Crawford Adams and by Frank mm. Horan, indeed, who I, yeah. who I started with. But the issue then was, I mean, when, when Frank and I did it, every paper was rewritten twice. Right. So when it was decided that a paper was to be published, he did half and I did half. Oh. And then they it went off to the authors. And when they came back, I did the ones that he'd done first of all and the other way around. Wow. And I thought when I became editor, this is nonsense. Really, all this stuff is so time consuming. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, on it goes. And yes. Emma was Emma was absolutely right. And 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 it is it it's very important that. And yeah, I, no. I I mean my guess is that we may be the only journal in the world that yes. that, that, that allows old fools to, to to tamper with the material on and on and on. No, that, that, I think that's fascinating and really interesting. Like you say, that it's interesting the things that have not changed and that things that hold firm and stand the test of time, I, I suppose. And I suppose that leads us on nicely. I, I, I mean, one thing I wanted to spend quite a lot of time talking about today is how you feel the, the journal has evolved in other areas over the past couple of decades, because I know you've been on the, you've been involved with the journal for 20, 30 years now, with the editorial board, the, the editor and, and the editor emphasis now. What do you feel have been the, the big changes, you know, that, that you've really noticed and that are, I hope often for the better? The, all the major changes have happened since I left, I think. <laughs> I may have been holding a lot of them back. But, the, no, the changes have been absolutely fantastic and all for the better. Mm. Uh, I mean, you must stop me if I'm boring, but, but Not at, all. at the very beginning, my first involvement with the journal I was as a reviewer of course mm. and in those days you got a big white envelope with a paper in it to review and they seemed almost always to come at the end of the week on a Friday so when you went into the hospital on a Saturday you took your paper to review and you went to the library of course because you know there wasn't the internet mm. yeah. and you needed to look up all the stuff in the in the library but then now when I then started working at the journal, the nature of the journal was, of course, very, very, very different to what it is now. Mm. I mean, it had a different title, yes. apart, apart from anything else. But the material was very differently done. Mm. We had the papers, Andy, were at the front. Mm. And then at the back, there was a lot of traditional stuff. Mm. There were obituaries, mm. you know, letters to the editor, mm. book yes. reviews, notices of meetings. I mean, just stuff. That mm. was very, very, very traditional. And the papers at the front, now that I look back on it, the quality of them was very low. Mm. I mean, they were retrospective. 
Mm-hmm. They were case series, cohort studies. I mean, they were obs- all observational. Mm-hmm. And there was an occasional case report, of course, which was very exciting. I used to love putting in case reports. And that material all came from a very, very traditional, basic platform of people. There'd be those from America, from the UK, a lot from institutions, well-known institutions in Europe, and a bit from Commonwealth countries in Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And this was the tradition. This is how it had been for years and years and years. And during the time that I was editor, the material from America went down Mm -hmm. quite a bit, partly because of the politics of what mm. in America and the relationship with the JBS with the Academy, and partly because of the upcoming separation, mm. which I, I have to say I was very much in favour of, it, and I, mm. I was sorry in retrospect that it took such a long time. And why was I so much in favour of it? But predominantly because it seemed to us that the American Journal was becoming, because of it, the local politics, it was becoming more and more American, American-centric, if you like. And I wanted to get more international stuff. And Emma was keen to help with that. And I started visiting places, went to India and China. And honestly, the stuff, when I first went to see uh, Brad Sekaran in Kombutori, what they were doing with trauma and with with general uh, orthopedics, particularly pediatrics, actually, and what George Anderson was doing at the Christian Medical Centre in Valor was with brachial plexus. And that was absolutely one and thrilling for me. And I wanted to get some of that stuff going and generate it ourselves. Yes. So that so that was nice. And then remember that in those days, of course, although it was a general journal, it was very difficult to get material, good material in the subspecialties. Yes. Very good, very few good papers came in hand surgery. Saying. Mm. And I mean, the fact that now there, there are prospective randomized control trials in trauma is, of course, absolutely fantastic. Mm. And yeah. I mean, I have to note that that, of course, started in Canada with, with Rick Buckley and, and, and that lot. Anyway, so the, the, it was difficult to get good papers. And what Faris and Emma have been able to do fantastically is to not only increase very dramatically the quality of the papers submitted, but increase them across the board. Yes. So that now there are very, very good methodological papers in the subspecialties. And yes. that speaks volumes for them. And of course, started very early on with the subspecialty editors, which was a very, very, very good move. So they, we have a lot to be grateful to them for. And this also brings to the fore a very, very, very fundamental question about the work of the BJJ, which is, of course, the place of a general orthopedic journal. Is yeah. there such a thing? Yeah. Is it required? Because, you know, specialising much younger and going rightly off to your mm. specialist journals, and is there a need? And, of course, what, what Ferris and Emma have been able to do is to show absolutely that they were on the right track completely and that this journal is completely, wholly, absolutely, utterly needed. And the fact that the the impact factor is now more than five is fantastic um, for a great, wonderful achievement uh, of them. Anyway, so the the main ways in which it has changed is that the shape of the whole thing has changed and the quality has shot up and all that old stuff has gone so there aren't all that, <laughs> all, all that um, stuff at the back. Those are all the ways in which it has changed fabulously for the good. And the ways in which it has not changed are that there are old people like me allowed to continue <laughs> um, interfering with prize material. 
Yeah, no, that's that's really fascinating, James, just how it's been quite a rapid change, hasn't it? You know, even over the past 10 years, the quality of the methodology, like you say, across all the all the subspecialty areas of orthopedics has just shot up so rapidly. And it's almost a self-perpetuating thing, isn't it? You know, people see it being done, people believe they can do it as well, and they can do it. And it and it all it's a snowball effect. And like you say, the quality uh, across the board now is is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Well, I think that most of that has happened in the last 10 years. Most of that yeah. has happened since I've gone. And most of that has happened because of various factors. Faris never got on with it. And I had started something. When I was editor, I started something called Reviewer's Days because I yeah. actually, although I'd reviewed a bit, mm. I didn't really feel that I was that confident as a reviewer uh, or that I knew enough mm. uh, to be in the position that I was in. So I, I got Reviewer's Days going. And, and they have been very, 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 successful as you know Absolutely. and out of those days came concentration on aspects of methodology and aspects of statistics and all of that stuff yeah. and out of those days came the next generation of people like Andy Duckworth for instance and and Matt and Ben yeah. and I mean all, all that you know who have contributed phenomenally to the increase in the quality of the material in our in our journal and continue so to do yeah, no, that's very kind. I think you're right. That those research, well, they were reviewers days, like you say, and I remember going on one myself. And now there are research methods and reviewing sort of a course, and what they've added is is it's really remarkable. So if we sort of move on from the from the, sort of the history of the journal, James, I know you've picked a few highlight papers for us, um, and I just thought we'd sort of touch on these briefly, if that's okay. The first is the the multicenter longitudinal observational study from the Netherlands that uses data from the Osteoarthritis Initiative. And that was assessed to assess whether patients with or at risk of developing symptomatic OA of the knee who receive an, a steroid injection have an increased risk of requiring arthroplasty. And what, what made you sort of highlight this paper, James, in particular? Well, I'm very interested, of course, in big data. Mm. And I have a lo- I have a trouble. I have trouble with big data. When I was editor and starting to get senior statistical advice, the question, how many people need to be asked what question over what period of time to get an answer that will have clinical significance? Those sort of questions mm. became very interesting to me, and I had trouble with them. And increasingly, as I needn't remind you, people like Aviva Petri would say everything, everybody needs, every study needs a power study. And if you do power studies retrospectively, certainly on ordinary case series, you will find more often that there are too many patients in the study than there are too few. Mm -hmm. So I was always suspicious of big data Mm. because I was impressed with the statistician's view that only a certain number of people are needed to ask to answer a question. And then when meta-analysis and systematic analysis came along, I thought this must be an answer here. The statisticians, if you pool enough data, you must get something that has more statistical evidence and therefore hopefully maybe more clinical evidence. But in fact, that didn't happen. And when I was editor, increasingly we got meta-analyses because, of course, they are not so difficult to do, although time-consuming. But the number of times that I looked at a meta-analysis and I said said to myself, if we publish this, this conclusion will change clinical practice, was very, very, very rare. Mm, mm. Uh, And so I was suspicious and worried about big data. But nowadays, of course, 
The main issue is that the quality of the data has changed. So, mm -hmm. for instance, in registries, you know, I've got prom stuff, and there's just much more that is of interest when pooled. Mm. And therefore, I like this paper because I'm now interested in it, in, in big data. And it seemed to me that it was a straightforward issue. And what I liked about it was the straightforwardness, that it was large, it was multi-center, it involved prom data, it yeah. asked one question, mm -hmm. does this injection of steroid in, uh, mean that you're more likely over quite a long period of time yes. to require knee replacement? And the answer is yes. Yeah. And and you know the, the, there wasn't that much radiology involved, and you, no. you could you could think that that was a limitation of the paper, but it was very nicely set out. It was better set out after it had been rewritten. It was nicely set out. The question was uh, was asked. It was a big multicenter trial. A lot of people. All the data, the problems were relevant. It seemed to me mm -hmm. they asked the question and they answered. It. Is does this increase the chance of you needing knee replacement? Yes. Yeah. And I like that. I like, just like the simplicity. Yeah, no, I, I, t I totally agree, isn't it? Often when you read papers, and we have a tendency to do that because there is more statistical analysis performed these days and everything, but what is nice is when a relatively straightforward question that then is answered. It's, it's very nice that when you read it, isn't it? It just, it makes it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So speak. yeah no, were, those were always the papers I was looking for, really, as a yeah. Have yeah. you got a simple question? Have you got simple methodology? Have you got rather limited statistics? Have you got the answer? Will it change practice? And that that hasn't changed. No, no. And I, I mean, I think, I'm not sure that this will will change practice. I, but I may, maybe we'll think twice about. Yes. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I, well, I liked uh, it for all those reasons. Well, I think that's right, isn't it? I think it necessarily these papers don't necessarily give you the, the total answer, but they raise the question, don't they? They make yeah. people think, and they maybe paint people do more research. And that's that's great, isn't it? In itself, it doesn't have to give you that definitive answer. Well, and uh, I remember there being an awful lot of papers on this question in the past that were sent to me, and and uh, and very, very, very few were methodologically sound and were mm -hmm. were just as you say, Andy, simple, straightforward. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So, if we we then move on, James, I was going to move on to the second paper that that was the one from Japan. And then yes. sort of highlighting sort of the international reach of the journal. And again, it's a multi-center study reporting on 212 cementless Oxford Uni knees, which were undertaken in 174 patients in six hospitals with the aim of the study to determine this when cementless tibial components could be safely used in Japanese patients based on the size and shape of, of the tibia. I thought this was really interesting. I have to say, I hadn't, I hadn't read this study before. You'd highlighted it to me, but I, I thought this was really interesting. <laughs> Well, I I like this for old-fashioned reasons. I remember when I first went to Japan, well, one of the first times I went, there was a meeting of the knee section at a Japanese meeting. And suddenly I saw all this tibia vera mm. in adults with a very, very, very prominent beak sort of thing on the medial tibial plateau. And the rest of the knee was fine. And it seemed that this was very, 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 very common in Japan. And at that time, Andy, we were getting an awful lot of papers about CAD-CAM, mm -hmm. all this stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole future of arthroplastic surgery is going to be transformed by this stuff. Mm -hmm. You show this joint to a 3D computer model, it'll make a model of what you need to put in its place. And that's obvious. Yeah. And I thought, looking at this, this is the answer. I wonder what David Murray is going to do with, with this funny shape. Yes. there and i've been wondering it ever since and there it is a very 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 nice straightforward paper that tells exactly what david murray would be doing yes. with, with this problem and and i've because i've 
every so often at night turned over in bed and thought, I wonder what the hell's going on with these Japanese medical compartment patients with OA. And there it is. Again, a very straightforward paper and nicely big centre yeah. and, and well illustrated and very well rewritten yeah. and giving you a very simple message. I, I, I just liked it. it I think, I think that's right, and it, and it and it shows that not only the the importance of of getting data from across the world, doesn't it? And this is, yes. is you know, and and how relevant that is, and how different potentially practices can be across the world. And that's the great insight for for me as well. Again, that was you're absolutely right. It's wonderful that all those centres were involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And that we had it. It was very good. No, I, I agree. So if we move on to just the, the final paper you kindly picked for us, which is actually from some of my colleagues here in Edinburgh, and that was from our shoulder team here, which was a 10-year review of, of, of almost 2,500 distension arthrograms for the treatment of adhesive capsulitis of the shoulder. And the aim of that was to determine the efficacy of the procedure and determine you know, sort of what factors affected recurrence. So what sort of made you pick, pick this out, James? I absolutely love this paper, for, for, again, for very old-fashioned reasons. I remember when we first got a paper about distension arthrography of the shoulder, and I thought, for God's sake, honestly, but what are we doing? Putting a needle in the shoulder and blowing up the capsule and telling me that's making people feel better. I said, don't be stupid, you lads in Edinburgh. <laughs> uh, um, and so I think I may have turned down an awful lot of papers. Anyway, and here it is, who absolutely... Very, very, very well set out. And you need more. You need 50 rather than 30 mil for to get it. And it absolutely works. It, yeah. And it seems to be astonishing. Yeah. And I liked it for all those reasons. And I felt appalled that I felt so um, so cynical and critical about those early papers. And I wanted to apologise to the good Mr. Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. No, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? And then I think it's like, you know, like you say, key take-home messages, if, if you use this, you know, the arth- what was there? Arthrosco- arthroscopic capsule release rate was 1.7% across the yes. entire cohort. It's amazing. Over that it? long period of time. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing because you would think at least the capsule would get stuck back again. Yeah, absolutely. Say. Isn't it? And it's, it's such a, I like to say again, a simple message. Yes. With, and a very simple technique. And it yeah. bloody works. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. No, absolutely. Uh, no, I felt appalled. And I, but I was, and I was very thrilled. <laughs> That's so if, uh, moving on from the paper, just to sort of finish off, James, you know, what do you. I suppose, what do you see the challenges are ahead? I suppose, not only for maybe for research, what are our next steps, but also what 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 next for the journal, do you think? Well, they, I think the journal is in a fantastically strong place now and very, very lucky to have you all doing all this wonderful stuff. They are the... The, there are hidden problems that will go on, like open access, for instance, will mm. go on and on and on forever. Mm. And I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I suspect that some aspects of open access will be of very great interest to some research workers. I mean, not so much in the clinical field as in the engineering field or the genetic field or the biochemical field, because mm. they, because of the way in which that those workers work they need their answers quickly uh, and it shouldn't be difficult for open access to answer their problems Mm -hmm. and i'm sure that that will continue like that Mm -hmm. the other the other issues well whether they will go on being a need for general orthopedic journal is being answered yeah Uh, um whether how many people will want to be looking at it online uh, and and how many will want to be having it hard copy that will that will continue and I, i'm not sure that it matters um, no. how that that argument will 
um, turnout. I think that the, there are terribly important issues that have always been. The one, one thing that really worries me is the relationship between the journal and training programmes. Yeah. Because there's so much that the journal ought to be involved with training programmes. And, and it just seems too difficult. And you're all too busy. <laughs> uh, and the time that is set aside... You see, we had journal clubs and all that stuff, which was such yeah. fun. And all our bosses came. Yeah. And God, you looked at the journal carefully mm. uh, in those days. Well, quite carefully. And I'm, I've always been very sad about that. And I don't know what the answer is. And I don't know. Maybe there isn't an answer. Yeah. But we need to think about the trainees all the way, all the way, all the way, all the way, because they hopefully will be people who run the journal in the future, of course, uh, and, and the people who will determine the... The, the the style of clinical practice you know yeah absolutely they're, they're the absolutely they're the, future. they're the future absolutely well james i think that's all we have time for but thank you so much for your excellent overview of not only the specialty area but a really amazing insights into sort of recent history of the journal and how we've how it's evolved over the past few decades it was a it was fantastic to talk to you really interesting and informative and thanks so much for joining us thank you thank you thank you and to our listeners, we do hope you've enjoyed joining us today. Feel free to tweet or post about anything we have chatted about today. Thanks for listening and take care, everyone.